Well, friends, today we are coming to the end of a four-week teaching series that we've been in here at Covenant entitled Rekindle. It's a series where we are looking at one chapter of the Bible, Acts chapter 2. And what we've talked about over the course of this series, what we've noticed in this chapter of Scripture, is that the Holy Spirit comes into the world. And as the Holy Spirit comes into the world and gives birth to the church, we see this great life that is possible in God. This great life in the Holy Spirit, this life that takes the disciples and they go from an uncertain and kind of unknowing group in a room to men and women who are alive in God. As we talked about, the glory of God are people fully alive. And you see just this life in them, this purpose in them, this passion in them. And it starts to fill them up. And as it fills them up, it actually bubbles out from them to the world around it. It starts impacting the city of Jerusalem and then goes out to start impacting the world. And what we've been talking about over these four weeks is how is it that you and I can be alive in the same way in the spirit? That it's not about just like going to church and checking the box and doing our religious duty, but we want to be alive. Talk about that the church is an airport, not the destination. That the church is meant to, to uh, be something that brings us into contact with something transcendent, larger than ourselves. We want to be alive in that spirit. We want to have that life. We want to have it bubbling within us and uniting us together and bubbling out from us and impacting the world around us. And so what we've been talking about in this series is that to have that life, to be rekindled in our faith, no matter who we are, that the Holy Spirit doesn't just accidentally show up in people's lives. It doesn't just sort of randomly happen. It's not that we can just go about our busy life going, well, that'd be great. I'd love it if that happened to me. I'd love to be spiritually alive, but right now I got a pretty long to-do list that I got to work through. So if God wants to show up, God can, but I got to just kind of move on forward. What we've talked about is that if we want to have life and have it abundantly, so we said last week, you have to posture yourself. You have to position yourself very deliberately, as we see here in Acts chapter 2, to be open to the presence of the Spirit and to join in with what the Spirit is doing in the world around us. God is moving in the world around us all the time. I think most of the time we're so busy and preoccupied we just don't see it. And so what does it mean to posture ourselves and position ourselves in a way to become fully alive? Now, I want to acknowledge as we close this series out today that there's going to be potentially a little bit of a disconnect that I'm hoping we can bridge. And the disconnect is that we are ending this series on spiritual vitality and being rekindled on Pledge Sunday. And I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge the fact that there could be some of you who are sitting there going, seriously? like we should have ended this last week. Because when I think about spiritual vitality and being alive in the life of the Spirit and being fully alive and it bubbling out from me, building church budgets is not where I go in my mind. I would imagine that there's some of you right now who are going, um, you know, that, that, that that is a separation, that the spiritual stuff stays spiritual and the money stuff and the practical stuff, that kind of stays in a different camp. We shouldn't, we shouldn't bring these together at the same time. And the church has even gone along with this at times. I've lots of times heard churches almost apologize when they talk about money. It's like, we're really sorry, but do you know how much it, it costs to like run the electricity bills here? It costs a lot, so you gotta give, because we gotta like be able to do this and, and everything else. We've sort of separated, bifurcated this idea of money and spirituality. So it could seem a little odd that we're ending a rekindle Acts 2 series on Pledge Sunday. But I want you to know what I want us to, to, to at least be open to today 
is that how, what the early church understood is that how we handle our church, our, our finances, how we handle our stuff is not primarily a financial question. It is a spiritual question. And that if we want to be alive in the spirit, there is a call to our finances and our money and our stuff that is unavoidable. And I am aware of the fact that some of you right now might be going, I'm sure you would say that. I'm sure that you would say that my giving is somehow tied into spiritual vitality. I'm sure you're just objective as a pastor as we kind of do this, how that works. But I want just today to see it in the text. And to consider the fact that if we want to be alive in our spirits, alive in our souls, alive and fully alive as we leave here, and if we want to take our finances out of that equation, there is a ceiling, there is a cap that is on how spiritually vibrant we can be. To the early Christians, how they handled their stuff was just as important and spiritual as whether they were praying or not. They didn't see the separation, the bifurcation of the spiritual and the religious, the transcendent and the financial. They saw it as one. But while we're thinking about that, it's also not just on you guys, but it's on us as a church, that same thing. Uh, I, I believe that what the session is about to enter into and in building a budget from your pledges from 2024 is itself not just primarily a financial exercise, it's a spiritual exercise. And that if this church doesn't continue in its tradition of seeking to take the finances given to it, as well as the other things that have been given to it, and seek to be outwardly focused, loving this city, loving this world in extravagantly generous ways, that we will have a cap on our spiritual vitality as a congregation. But building a budget is a primarily spiritual exercise. All right, to try to bridge this gap, we're looking at the last five verses of Acts chapter 2, okay? So we've walked our way through the chapter. We've looked at the uh, Holy Spirit coming. Last Sunday, we read Peter's uh, sermon on Pentecost. And right after his sermon, this is the text that ends this chapter. We're going to read these five verses. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. They, the first Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we gather in worship today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news. And it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So even though the word church is not used in this passage, this is the first church in history. This is the first community of Jesus followers who are trying to figure out how to live and do life and organize themselves in a way that uh, could bring life and vitality. It could stay in the life of the Spirit. This is the first church in history. Right there in Jerusalem. 
And what I want us to do as we kind of look at this passage today is I want us to divide this passage into kind of two categories because there's a lot happening here. There's the goodwill of all the people, the Lord's adding to their number, there's all this stuff that's happening. And what I want us to do is to be really clear, as I think one of the most important parts of the New Testament church was really clear, about what in this passage are the first Christians devoting themselves to? What do they see as their job? And what do they leave and turn over to God? Does that make sense? Like, what does it mean to be the church? What were they focused on doing? And what did they sit there and go, that's not up for us. That's up to God to do. And that clarity could teach us something today. And I think when you look at this passage, there are four things. And I invite you to keep it in front of you and to look at, at what's here. But in these five verses, there's four things that the first church devoted themselves to, it says. The first one we're going to bring up here. Uh, it says in verse 42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Those are the first uh, words of what we just read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's number one. They were very clear that this is the work we do. Now, what is that work? What are the apostles teaching? The apostles were telling them about Jesus. They had just been with Jesus for a number of years. They were telling uh, the, the new Christians about the stories of Jesus. They were talking about uh, uh, how he had taught, how he had healed, how he had loved people, how he had gathered them together. They talked about how he had been crucified and how he had risen again. But they weren't just telling the stories of Jesus from a, from a Jewish context, which all of them were. As we read in Peter's sermon last week, they were tying it back to the Old Testament. They were sitting there saying that we worship a God of the covenant. We worship a God that we've been waiting for the Messiah, the deliverer. And so they were tying it back to the prophets and saying Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. But they were telling the stories about Jesus. And they gathered around that. And so telling those stories, the apostles' teaching, is the first thing they devoted themselves to, very clearly, okay? Number two, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. And you see that again in verse 42. Now, if you've been here from the beginning of this series, that's where we started in chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, we talked about that they postured and positioned themselves because the men and women were in an upper room, and when the Holy Spirit came, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And it's important to see this thread that still continues. They didn't devote themselves to prayer and then the Spirit showed up and like, okay, we're done praying now. This was a rhythm of life. This was a rhythm that all of us need to have in our life. We talked about this in the first week, this rhythm of solitude, this, this yearning that we have inside of us to connect with God, to connect with our Creator, to connect spiritually with something larger than ourselves. We've got to keep devoting ourselves to this. this. This past week, I went back and listened to, to how we invited you to pray on that first week through uh, the song, Lord, I Need You. Now on Wednesday morning, my devotional time was praying that way again through the music and through the songs. And I want us to keep being a people, as we see here, that understand that that is essential to being rekindled, to being alive, that we devote ourselves to prayer. Third, what we see is that they devoted themselves to what we're going to call intimate fellowship today. And this is the one in these five verses that gets the most detailed, okay? And it's really important. It says that they gathered daily in two places. They gathered in the temple. You'll see that there. But it says they also gathered in each other's homes every day. And it says they broke bread. They shared meals together. This is a deliberate kind of thing we talk about as life-on-life -life discipleship or doing life together here at Covenant. And we want to create a lot of, uh, of on-ramps into you finding ways, whether it's in small groups or Bible studies or mentoring relationships, where you can name the people who are praying for you and you know how to pray for them as a part of this community. 
that you have folks you are walking with that know you. You see, it's different. And I love the detail they give. It's different than having a five-minute conversation on the patio and, cap, and catching up to being in somebody's home, isn't it? To having a meal together in somebody. You can't hide when people are in your home. It's kind of like your life's on display at that point. And they were breaking those barriers down and getting involved in each other's lives. So third, intimate fellowship, which again, we build ourselves around here. And last, fourth, uh, what we're going to call extravagant generosity. It says that they will live in a way that almost feels irresponsible, doesn't it? Like in our kind of, you've got to grow up and be responsible uh, financially. It says that they took and sold what they had and gave wherever they saw need. I need us to see a couple of things here. I need us to see that they devoted themselves to extravagant generosity as much as they devoted themselves to prayer. They didn't bifurcate this idea of, well, that's the religious stuff and this is the spiritual stuff. But they saw it all as one. And they also weren't asking the question, does tithing mean before or after taxes? (laughs) It's a whole different spirit to it. It wasn't like, where's the bar and like, how do I... Just clear it. Like, what's the, what's the minimum I got to do to check this box of what I'm supposed to? There was this sense of what God has blessed me with exists to be a blessing to others in need. This extravagant generosity. And that's what we're going to kind of focus on today as we come forward on Pledge Sunday. Now, before we talk about that, I just real quick want to like also help us to, to look at and see in this passage what's not present here. There's a lot of stuff that's happening here that they are trusting the Lord to do, that they are not worried about. And and one of the things that I think is most important that the church today in America uh, has really mixed up is, for instance, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. There's like books, there's curriculum, there are speakers on how to grow a church. And the New Testament church would have looked at it and said, that's nonsense. They did not have an eight-step strategic plan for evangelizing the Roman Empire. They did not have that. They didn't operate that way. But what they did is they said, these four things we are going to devote ourselves doing, and we have a confidence that God's going to take care of the rest of it. And that might seem naive, but I want us to see how God's still working in the same ways. Here at Covenant, in recent years, we have been growing quite a bit. We were growing before the pandemic, which is where our growth task force started. Uh, After the pandemic, like almost everywhere else, we kind of had to get a new baseline and reset. And now what we're seeing, we talked about this in our session meeting last month, we're back basically to pre-pandemic levels, but we have this whole online campus that's now with us that didn't exist. And it's growing year after year while we're growing on our campus again. And guess what? I have no idea why. We have 30 new members today, right now, that are joining in our latest new members class, which is an amazing thing. And if this class is like most of our other classes, uh, they are growing not through letter of transfer. They're not coming necessarily just from other churches, but they're joining through profession of faith in Jesus and reaffirmation of faith. We talk about the fact that that is kingdom growth versus church swapping. See, church growth isn't the point. And what's interesting is that in all of our growth that we have had here, both on campus and now online, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm just, this is true. We have never once had a conversation at this church about how do we grow. And we never will, because it's not the point. We've never in a staff meeting said, if we do that, we think people will come. We've never in a session meeting sat there and said, if we do this, are we gonna get more young families? 
I think what we tried to do is to keep separate, this is what we're supposed to do, and God's going to be faithful to us if we're faithful to things we're called to do. This stuff, it's, it's not just like pie in the sky, uh, you know, well, it must have worked then, but it doesn't work now. It still works now if we trust God. We are living evidence of that here at Covenant. It still works this way if we trust God. And as we see last and finally, this idea of extravagant generosity, it's as important as prayer to them. They didn't separate it. And so what I want us to do today is ask the question, why, why is it that how we handle our money and why is it how we handle our stuff, whether we're generous or not, whether we live with open hands or clenched fists, why is that important to our faith being rekindled and revitalized as being a part of a prayer ministry? And what I believe and I want you to consider this, because I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. But what I believe is because it's the most direct and practical way that we can embody the life and ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. It allows us, unlike anything else, to imitate Jesus. And I actually think that's the whole list. I think how they organized the first church is they did, they did these four things, and it was about imitating Jesus, okay? Think about this. Just think about this from their perspective. Jesus has had the Holy Spirit come, and now they got to figure out, what do we do? He said, you're going to be my witnesses to, to the ends of the earth. You are going to be my witnesses. And none of them are religious scholars. None of them have, like, led large multinational organizations, and so they're like, well, here's how we can do this and expand in a way. That... None of them knew how to do that. And so what did they do? They, number one, they told the stories about Jesus and the apostles' teaching. Number two, they devoted themselves to prayer. Well, why would they have done that? I think it's because they were sitting there going, well, we were with Jesus for a few years. What did he do? He would go off and pray all the time. We asked him how to pray. He taught us how to pray. He told us to pray. We should probably keep doing that if we want to be his people. We're going to imitate him. Why do we have intimate fellowship? Did they just, were they bored and they didn't have enough time? It was like, well, I don't know. Let's just hang out together. No, it wasn't that. The way that Jesus tore, uh, uh, shaped and formed them is Jesus didn't give them a lecture once a week and then say, come back and I'll give you more information. He said, come walk with me and I'll make you fishers of men. It was in the years that they, 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 they uh, ate food with Jesus, they joked with Jesus, they hung out with Jesus. It's in community that we're shaped and formed. Jesus embodied that for them and they said, we should do the same thing going forward. They were imitating Jesus. But this last one, extravagant generosity, gets at the heart of who Jesus is and why he's unique. That Jesus came into this world and out of love for this creation held nothing back from it. He loved people that nobody else loved. He paid attention to people that nobody else paid attention to. He uh, died on a cross to give himself away for the salvation of this world. He held nothing back, even his life. Believing that as you give it away, you bring a healing, a salvation, a shalom, a peace to a world that needs it. And the disciples are saying, that's what he did. And therefore, we are called to do it as well. What would it look like to imitate Jesus by taking what we have and giving it away where we see need? It's the most practical way, I believe, that you can really imitate Jesus. You know, this is actually how uh, Christianity began to be noticed in the Roman Empire. Uh, it's pretty interesting um, when you look at how, when Christianity started to spread from Jerusalem and started moving out, 
when it was that Romans started paying attention to it, when pagan Romans started paying attention to this kind of outlawed little religion in a podunk part of the Roman Empire, what did they notice about it? And this last rhythm of extravagant generosity is actually what they noticed. When you read the kind of early Roman records, and they actually used it to justify persecuting Christians in the earliest persecutions. What's really interesting is some of the earliest persecutions, some of the earliest things Romans noticed about Christians and they accused them of was cannibalism. I bet not many of you today were on your bingo card were like, it's Pledge Sunday and we're talking about cannibalism. <laughs> I feel pretty confident that's what we're going to be. I, I, I imagine there are a number of visitors right now going, are you kidding me? It's Pledge Sunday and we're talking about cannibalism. Not what we expected at 9.30 service this morning. But the Christians were accused by Romans of cannibalism. Now, why would that be? Think about this. Why would they accuse them of cannibalism and then justify persecuting them? Well, there were two reasons. The first reason is they heard this rumor about when we would gather. You know, some of you are probably tuning into what this rumor is. And the rumor is when they gathered, there was a body that was broken and they would eat it. And there was blood that was shed and they would drink it which we do in our worship services still today, 2,000 years later. But the other thing that they noticed, and that they combined with that idea of a broken body that's eaten, is that in certain Roman cities, there was a public area where unwanted children could be taken. Children that nobody wanted, families didn't want. And they could be left there for no penalty, most of the time to a pretty awful fate. And what the Romans started noticing about the Christians is that the Christians would go to these places and take the unwanted children. And so they combined this idea that there's bodies that are broken and these children who are being taken. But of course, what they were noticing, what made the Christians different, what they paid attention to, was that these early followers of Jesus were practicing extravagant generosity. They weren't looking at these children going, I'm going to pray for you. But they were taking them off of the streets and taking them into their homes and sharing their food and sharing their clothing and sharing their love because our faith teaches us there's no such thing as a child that is not valued, that is not loved, that every single child, every single person is created in the omago dei, created in the image of God, that there is something holy and divine about every single life. And so these Christians were practicing the opposite of extravagant generosity, and the Romans started noticing that just as we as covenant have noticed that our neighbors have paid attention to us because of things like medical debt forgiveness and school lunch debt forgiveness. We didn't do it so people would pay attention, but we did it, and folks start noticing what's going on there, and we do it because we are emulating the very essence in an imperfect way of who Jesus was who held nothing back, who practically gave everything he had away. We are called to practice extravagant generosity, friends. Dallas Willard has this great quote, uh, and he talks about discipleship. He said, Disciple, think about this for what we're going to be doing today. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. The first Christians looked at unwanted children and said, we believe Jesus would not just walk by and say that's too bad and shake his head and say a prayer for him. We think that Jesus would give what he had away to welcome them in, and we're going to do the same. 
And I don't know what Jesus would think of all the parts of the modern church, and I don't know what he would think of covenant, but I feel fairly confident that if we today want to practice extravagant generosity, we can say that Jesus wouldn't sit there and go, now, is, is this before or after tithing? Is this before or after taxes? What's the electricity bill here? And how do we do that? Are you, that's not how it works. Discipleship is becoming who Jesus would be if Jesus were you. As we wrap this up, as we seek to imitate Jesus in just a few minutes, minutes by practicing the generosity that for millennia has defined who Christians are. One of the things that struck me as we close and close this series is I'm struck by the fact that none of the disciples quit. I've been thinking about that throughout this series. I'm struck by the fact that even when it's like, we're going to sell everything we have and give it away, that none of them were like, yeah, I'm not really about that. It was like, no, it's been good, and I'm glad I've repented, and Jesus forgive me of my sins, and I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, and I know the words that Jesus loves me, and I can sing it. I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm going to move back to Galilee. I'm grateful for this experience, but I'm going to move back towards an ordinary life. Not one of them did it. And it's reminded me of why generosity can rekindle faith, why our spiritual vitality and our generosity are tied together. And I think it's reminded me of a quote by C.S. Lewis, who says that joy... Having joy in life, he says, is the presence of purpose. That joy isn't a feeling. It's not even an emotion. It's knowing why we're here. And when we are extravagantly generous, we become a part of the story of redemption that God is writing in this world out of love. And so today is our chance not just to feel it or think it or question it or wonder about it. Today is our chance to write the next verse in the story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We do ask, Lord, that you would lead and guide us as your people to what it means to practice extravagant, breathtaking generosity as individuals, as families, but as a congregation in this city. And as we do so, may we trust that we will come alive in your spirit and be rekindled in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.